I need to preface the message tonight out of 2 Thessalonians 2. It's, it's a little different in, in, in regards to the structure of the message. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay forth the, the text, and I'm going to try to preach it, I think, how Paul wrote it. Normally when I preach, I, I like to give application along the way. Um, but in this one, there, there's a lot of, a, a lot of teaching. Paul is, 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 is going to try to clarify some things to this church about end times. We call it eschatology, the study of, of the last days or end times. And so he, he's going he's gonna to say some things about the Antichrist and about the falling away, what we know as the abomination of desolation, the delusion that God puts on people so they can't be saved at a certain point. And, and there's a lot of things in here um, that, that Paul's going to write about. I need to... I, I need to explain those to the best of my ability as Paul did. Now listen, Paul didn't write 2 Thessalonians number 2 as a, 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 from a theological standpoint in, in this sense. He, he's already taught them a lot of detailed teaching about end times. Now 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is going to give a, just a short review of some things that apparently early on in his days at Thessalonica he had already taught them in detail. And so I'm going to talk about those things as he did, but you'll notice that Paul just gives us a phrase here and there about end times. And here's where we make the mistake as preachers. If we're not careful, we'll take some very dogmatic stances on the last days and end times based on just a snippet or a phrase that honestly we probably shouldn't make a dogmatic stance on. And so I'm going to give the interpretation of some of these things as I've been raised and I've been taught and as I've studied myself, but I'm not going to break fellowship with any of you or, or some of my preacher friends that I know for a fact stand differently on some of these things than I do. All right? Um, and, and, and I just wanted to preface that, that you're going to see some phrases in here that might actually bring forth more questions in your mind than I'll give answers to. Because... I, I, I think there's a bigger thought to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 than just eschatology. Or what we're supposed to learn about the last days. Certainly we're going to learn some things. But if you'll hang with me to the end, there's actually, Paul has a bigger point for his congregation here. Than just to make them smarter about the Antichrist. And falling away. And, and so I want you to follow with me all the way through. Chapter 2 is revisiting a thought that Paul had already talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I preached about an event in the last days called the Day of the Lord. If you look at just the title, the Day of the Lord, it seems like it would be a 24-hour day. It's not. It's more a series of events that takes place right after the rapture, is what I believe, begins with the seven-year tribulation period, culminates in the second coming of Christ to earth. When Paul speaks of the Day of the Lord, we're not talking about a happy time. Not talking about a good time. It's not like the rapture, a time of deliverance. This is a time of judgment on the earth. Now, the reason Paul brought up the day of the Lord in the first place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is because these new believers were in some very intense persecution so bad that they actually thought they were in the tribulation. Meaning they thought they had missed the rapture. So Paul writes 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 to tell them, you have not missed the rapture. Even your saved loved ones who have died already, they will not miss the rapture. You're not in the tribulation. The day of the Lord has not come yet. And it's like when Paul told them that, they, they took a big sigh of relief. Whew. We were scared for a second. 
We're just a little confused. And then Paul set the, the record straight in 1 Thessalonians 5, says, live in hope and confidence. And they said, okay, we will. But that relief didn't last long. Because over just the next few months, they were being deceived by some kind of false teacher that was telling them that they had missed the rapture again. And, and were telling them that they were in the day of the Lord. He went so far, this false teacher did, as he forged a counterfeit letter in Paul's name with false doctrine to deceive this church. I want to show you chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. You're going to have to study with me tonight. Be hungry for the word. Verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, watch, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, neither by word, now watch here, nor by letter, as from us, like it was written from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Now here's what's going on. Some, somebody walks into the city, comes into the town, and they, they pray upon these new believers, and they say, hey, we've got a word from Paul for you. And of course, if it's a word from Paul, these new believers are going to hang on every word Paul would say. He wrote the first letter to them. It helped them so dramatically that they wanted to hear what else he had to say. Paul led them to the Lord. They loved this man. And so this false teacher came and said, we got a word for you. Well, what's the word? It's from Paul, and he wanted you to know the day of the Lord has come. You are in the tribulation period. What? Yeah, yeah, Paul said it. In fact, he got it by revelation. That's what the verse said. It came through the Spirit. They would have told him, he, 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 he's preaching it by word. That's what, the, that's what it said, by, by message, by sermon. He's traveling around preaching this. And not only that, this false teacher said, hey, here's a letter. And gave him a letter that he forged in Paul's name. Now look to chapter 3 and verse 17. I'll prove this is true. Very end of the book. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. Why did Paul reemphasize that? Because somebody had apparently forged a letter that wasn't written with his hand. So we want to know, 2 Thessalonians, this is the truth. This is what I've written. So here the Thessalonians are new believers, vulnerable because of their persecution, preyed upon by a false teacher, and, and they actually believed that this letter had Paul's apostolic approval and they believed it. And Paul said in verse 2, they were shaken in their mind. They were troubled in their spirit. You know what that means? They were an emotional wreck. You know why? Because once again they thought they missed the rapture. Just like I was when I was a boy. And the evangelist would come and he'd preach on the last days and you'd get left behind and all the airplanes would crash. And then I would go home and I'd try to sleep that night and it wouldn't work real well. And then I would go peek into the hall just to make sure I could hear my parents snoring because I knew they were saved. If they didn't miss the rapture, I didn't either. Then I'd go back to sleep. So Paul writes to them with the same emphasis he did in chapter 5. But here's what he's going to do this time. He's going to go to further detail about the day of the Lord to prove that they had not it had not yet come. And here's how he's going to do it. He's going to point to one event that he calls the falling away. It's also referred to as the great apostasy. You might have heard it referred to most as the abomination, abomination of desolation. It's an event that has to occur, watch this, before the day of the Lord. And Paul is going to say in essence, here's what he's going to say. There's no way you can be in the day of the Lord because the falling away hasn't happened yet. Let's study verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, 
and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. What is the falling away? It's a specific period of time that will be marked by a massive rebellion and revolt against God. And Paul says the key character in this event is called the man of sin. The man of perdition, that word means destruction. Who do we know that man to be? Someone say it out loud. The Antichrist. Paul says that the falling away begins with the revelation of the Antichrist. Now catch this. Paul didn't say that's when the Antichrist would be born. He said he'd be revealed. That means identified. Which implies that before the falling away begins, the Antichrist has to already be on the scene. I'm not much into timelines because I, I don't think they're all right. But I've got a very simple one to give you a big picture view of what's going on. I hope you can see that. The next prophetic event to take place, we know, is the rapture of all believers. There's not another sign that has to take place. All right? We, we can't even put a timeline on that. It's imminent. It could happen at any moment. All right? That's when the dead in Christ arise, the, those that are alive and remain will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord and forever be in his presence. Right after the rapture, the seven-year tribulation period begins. As you can imagine, when the rapture happens, there will be great vulnerability all around the world. Mass chaos, everybody will be wondering what happened, and they'll be looking for leadership. The first three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to prey on that vulnerability, and he's going to rise to prominence. He's going to slowly position himself as a world leader. That, that means that he will embrace all religions. He'll embrace all people groups. He'll embrace everybody and unify them around himself. You can study the book of Daniel where it says that he will sign a treaty with Israel. He'll create peace in the Middle East. He'll be their protector. And, and, and they'll probably let him in and out of their temple. He'll, he'll look like he's religious. He'll talk about loving God and knowing God. And he'll slowly gain the trust and admiration of literally the entire world. At this point, after three and a half years of positioning himself, the falling away will actually begin. It'll begin with one major movement into the temple of Jerusalem. Some interpret this movement to be literal, and some interpret it to be more figurative. I interpret it to be liberal, or liberal, literal, in liberal. Verse number four. Whoso opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So this is how the falling away begins. This Antichrist will exalt himself by going to what I believe to be the temple that will be built in Jerusalem, and he will sit on the throne. Now think about it. Why does he pick a temple? Historically, the temple is a holy place. The place where, where, where has always been the symbol of God's presence. I believe that the Antichrist will walk in, it just makes sense. He'll sit on the throne and in the worst form of pride and blasphemy possible, he will declare that he is God and he will demand that everybody worship him of God and if they don't, they will be martyred. Jesus prophesies that the same event will take place and that's where he calls it the abomination of desolation. Look at this verse in Matthew 24, 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. An abomination denotes an object of disgust. What the Antichrist is doing, would you not agree, is making himself as God. That is disgusting. The reason why it's called the abomination of desolation is because the word desolate means to lay waste. That's what the Antichrist is doing here. He's laying waste the house of God. He's, he's causing it to be desolate. 
That's a basic understanding of what the falling away is. A time in the second half of the tribulation period where the Antichrist will desecrate the temple, set himself up as God, and demand that the world worship him as God. But Paul doesn't end there. He goes on and tells them how all of this will be possible. How will the Antichrist have this kind of power? And I'll tell you, it's only possible because God allows it to be possible. You see, right now, God, through what I believe to be, and, and there are multiple interpretations, what I believe the restraining power of the Holy Spirit is withholding this from happening right now. If it was up to Satan, he would lose himself a long time ago and, 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 and wreak more havoc than he already is on this world. But God's holding them back divinely. Look at verse 6. And now ye know what withholdeth, or, or refraineth, that he might be revealed in his time. Now apparently Paul's talking to them like they already know. He's already told them who this is. We, just, we know it's divine in nature, but, but I think it's probably the Holy Spirit that is withholding Satan from being completely loosed. And notice those last words of verse 6, in his time time, meaning this, nothing will happen outside of when God says it will happen. He is sovereignly in control of all of this. However, that doesn't mean that Satan isn't already working in our world. Look at the first part of verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Don't you agree we're getting a small glimpse of what it will be like when the Antichrist is totally loosed? We see the growing evil and wickedness and vileness and sin that is getting worse and worse and worse in our world. The Apostle John calls it the spirit of the Antichrist. In 1 John 4, 3, look at this verse. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come. And even now, even now already, it is in the world. So, so while we understand that a future Antichrist will one day burst on the scene... We know that, that, that there's the spirit of the Antichrist that is already working in our world. And if you think the spirit of the Antichrist is bad, it only pales in comparison to what will happen when through the Holy Spirit God lifts the restraint off of Satan and literally all hell breaks loose. Look at the last part of verse 7. Study with me. Only he who now letteth will let, that's God, until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked, the Antichrist, be revealed. If you could imagine, church, a kind of a dish with, 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 with liquid in it. And then place a lid on that dish. Imagine you put that into a microwave and you start heating it up. You will see slowly that the liquid will boil to a point where it will probably start leaking out the sides of the dish. But eventually it will boil to the point where that lid will come flying off and liquid will burst out of the dish. That's the picture. Right now we are seeing the spirit of the Antichrist. A little bit of sin here, a little bit of wickedness here, a little bit of working of Satan here in all kinds of ways that I can mention. But you know... But understand that the Holy Spirit, through his restraining power, still has a lid on Satan. And so all we're seeing right now is the leaking of sin and the leaking of wickedness. But when God says it is time, he will lift that lid off. And I'm telling you, this is frightening. That literally all of hell will break loose as Satan and all his demons will burst onto the scene. If you think it's bad now, it's unbelievably wicked when this happens. Paul goes on to tell us what this will look like. 
when the restraining lid is taken off and, and Satan is loosed and the Antichrist will reign in that last three and a half years. Look at the last part of verse 8. He does start with something positive, and I like this. Verse 8, and then shall that wicked be revealed, I like this, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. You know why I think he started with the positive? Because these people are already scared out of their minds. And he said, hey, before I give you any more details, you need to know God wins in the end. Somebody say amen to that. Verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. So he's going to come disguised as God himself, but he's going to be empowered by Satan. And notice how Paul put it, signs and lying wonders. That, that, that clues us into the motive of the Antichrist. So Jesus performed miracles to save. The Antichrist will perform miracles so as to deceive. That's exactly what happens. Verse 10, study with me. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of truth, that they might be saved. Listen, millions of people, millions of people will fall under the lie of this Antichrist. There's a lot of possible interpretations that go on in the timing of that and how all that works. All I know for certain is that people from every tongue and tribe and nation will fall down and worship him, absolutely believing that lie, and they will perish and go to hell because of it. How's that possible? Verse 11. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should bring a lie. Now, this is frightening. It's going to be awful when people who have willfully rejected God's free offer of salvation actually get to the point when they can no longer believe. You might say, whoa, 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 God would really do that to somebody? Well, I'm not going to base it just off this scripture passage. But isn't that the way that God's worked in the past, if you know your Bible? Do you remember in the Old Testament when God was endeavoring to speak to Pharaoh to get him to release the children of Israel from bondage? you remember that in Exodus? you remember that God expressed what he wanted done? Let my people go. And if you read the book of Exodus, you read this, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then you read it again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. You read it again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. You read it again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then you know what you read all of a sudden in Exodus 9 verse 12? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What's happening? Here's what's happening. God gave him several opportunities, as he does us, to repent of our path. He would not repent of his path. And at a certain point, God fixed him in that path from which he could never return. I'm not satisfied with just that scripture passage. I'll, I'll, I'll go back to Genesis where Noah was building an ark. And God gave them over a hundred years to repent while Noah was still building the ark. But they willfully rejected him. And you know what God said in Genesis 6? My spirit will not always strive with man. At some point, a holy God has to go from striving to judging. You can study Romans 8, or Romans 1, rather, where, 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 where a whole people living in their sin, Paul says, are eventually given over to, what does he say, a retrobate mind. They, they, there's, there's a point of no return. You can go to Proverbs 29, verse 1. Where the man that is often rebuked but hardeneth his neck is suddenly destroyed and that without remedy. No cure, no turning back. And so some interpret this verse to mean this, that there will be many who come to a point in the tribulation that after rejecting Christ they will no longer be able to believe in anything but the Antichrist. And that's frightening. Are you hearing me? 
That's a terrible event. I'm going to pause right here, right now, and say if you're not saved, get saved today. Well, will I have another chance? I don't know. We can talk about that over coffee sometime. People fall on all kinds of sides of the issue there. Here's what I do know. Whenever the gospel is given in scripture, no preacher in scripture says you can wait till later. They didn't say, think about it and then come back and, hey, don't worry about it. If the rapture happens, you might get another choice. Every preacher preached the gospel with urgency. Today is the day of salvation. If you're not saved and you've been wrestling with that, get saved today. Get saved tonight. You'll have a chance. Paul doesn't stop there, though, because he's going to turn a corner and he's going to give him really the main point of, of this whole section of the letter. Because he's going he's to tell them, hey, I've told you some frightening things. Probably made you more nervous than you were before this false teacher came along. But here's the good news. You have nothing to worry about. And here's why. Because I'm able to give thanks to God because you've been saved. You will not have to face any of this. You will not perish. You will not be deceived. You will not be under strong delusion given by God. Look at verse 13 and 14. But we are bound to give thanks. That means let's say we have to give thanks. All way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the attaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's bringing them back to the original point of the text. Hey, you haven't missed the rapture. You will not miss the rapture. Your saved loved ones won't miss the rapture. And here's why. Because you have been saved by the gospel. I can go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 where Paul said that they received the word of God as it was in power. And that word changed their life. And Paul is bringing them back to the day of salvation when the gospel changed their life. And Paul is saying this, saved people don't perish. Saved people have nothing to worry about. Therefore, Paul says in verse 15, here it is, stand fast and hold the traditions. What does that word mean? Doctrine, biblical truth, which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Watch here, we're getting to the main thought. Paul says, stand fast in truth. The truth of what? What he just told them about in verse 14, the truth of the gospel. The truth that you believed. And what it means for your eternal future. Hey, he's telling them because of the gospel, you've been saved from the dreaded day of the Lord. Because of the gospel, you've been saved from the rule and reign of the Antichrist. Because of the gospel, you've been saved from being damned to perish in hell for all of eternity. So Thessalonians, when a false teacher, some yehu, forges a letter, or he comes and preaches a false message in regards to your future, don't be deceived. Don't be gullible. Don't forget what I taught you before this point. Stand fast in the truth that I taught you. Anchor yourselves in the gospel. And when you do, he says in verse 17 it will bring comfort to your heart and you will be established in every good word and work that's the message of the text to us tonight we too need to stand fast in the truth of the gospel in a world where we are bombarded by false teaching from every direction tv and social media and radio and podcast and books and newspapers and articles and blogs and false religions and false churches everywhere. If we are anchored to the truth of the gospel, we will soon be shaken in mind, troubled in hearts, 
have nothing of which to grab hold of during chaotic times and like in the days in which we live. Practically, I want to give you three main takeaways from this text. Very quickly, number one, if Satan can get us to doubt the truth of the gospel, he can rob us of our peace. Paul said, believe the truth of the gospel and you will have comfort. Forgive me for talking about my doubting of salvation again, but I struggled with this. No, literally this thought that I'd missed the rapture for 10 years. I can't help but think that there might be some in our congregation who are struggling with that same thought. Forgive me for being repetitive in my testimony, but I'm burdened for people who, who aren't anchoring their, their faith in the gospel. They're letting Satan rob them of the peace of their salvation. See, see, what happened to me growing up is, 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 is I was, I, I, instead of standing fast in what the gospel did for me, I was letting Satan rob me of my peace by planting seeds of doubt like this. You didn't really mean it. You couldn't have meant it. You're seven years old. You didn't really understand everything there was to understand about repentance, changing your direction and your mind. And you weren't really made to be a new creature anyway. And everybody who's in Christ is a new creature. Because when you got to 13, you really started acting like a punk. It might have been 12, but. And you did some things when you were 16 and 17 that saved people don't do. So there's no way you can be saved. I began to anchor myself in those false truths. And you can't even remember the date. That's why you had to get saved a second time at 13 so you could write a date in your Bible. So you couldn't be saved. You don't even remember what you said. You literally remember walking down the hall at 326 Beach Street, turning to your parents' bedroom. They were laying in bed, and you were crying and said, Dad, I need to get saved. And he came down to the, the foot of the bed, and he showed you in a full-color Bible how you get saved. I have no idea what verses he turned to. I have no idea what prayer I prayed. I, no, I don't know any of that. I just remember God was drawing to himself, and the best I knew how, I called upon him to be my Savior. That's all I know, but Satan said, that's not enough. And so when I was 19 years old, I finally anchored myself to the truth of the gospel. It's not up to me saying the right words, or behaving in a perfect manner, or remembering the date, or everything that surrounded that time. Here's what it's up to. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I called upon the name of the Lord the best I knew how. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he's buried. I believe that he's risen from the dead for my sins. The best I knew how as a seven-year-old boy, I humbled myself and called upon Christ. And now that's what I anchor myself into. And if you're an adult, if you're a teenager, you're a single adult, a college student, and you're back and forth and back and forth and back and forth because of some of the things I mentioned. Would you just stop letting Satan rob you of your peace and anchor yourselves in the truth of the gospel? Number two, believers must allow biblical truth to rise above every situation. See, the Thessalonians' gullibility was an emotional reaction to a stressful situation. Times got tough, and they got vulnerable. And that's what happens with us, by the way. Times get tough, and we get vulnerable. And Satan plays on our vulnerability. And he did in this church by way of a false teacher. 
And unfortunately, instead of remembering what Paul had taught them, they let the false teaching confuse them. Listen to me. Difficult circumstances, please get this, make even the most spiritual believer vulnerable to confusion. That's why you must stand fast in biblical truth and allow that truth to rise above your situation. You have to do what Paul taught this church to do. You have to interpret your present circumstances based on what you know to be true about your future. Here's what I mean. This world around us can get crazy. And it can affect a lot of areas of our life. But here's one area that it can't touch. What the gospel's done in us. Your situation, no matter how hard it is right now, can't trump the fact that you are a child of God. It can't trump the fact that nothing can separate you from the love of God. It can't trump the fact that you're not going to hell. It can't trump the fact that God will still work everything together for his good purpose in your life. It can't trump the fact that you have a guaranteed home in heaven awaiting you. It can't trump the fact that your God is still on the throne, has never fallen asleep, and will never lose control. That's biblical truth. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. You must stand fast in that and allow those truths to rise above your situations. Don't abandon this book because life gets hard. Because when life gets hard, you get vulnerable. And here's how Satan preyed on their vulnerability. He sent this false teacher. Because he knew that they, they were vulnerable to doubt their salvation. They were vulnerable to doubt that they had missed the rapture. All those things that we already talked about. But we have the full canon of scripture. I don't think the devil's necessarily preying on everybody in here about eschatology. But I do think he has a masterful way of twisting God's truth in moments in which we are going through difficult situations. Just like he did with Adam and Eve. Are you listening? Young people, listen closely. When you are going through moments of severe temptation... In your life, you are vulnerable. And the devil will begin to whisper and, tw and twist and, and, and give you counterfeit versions of God's truth about sex and sexuality. He will do it through, through family members. He will do it through social media. He will do it through college professors. He will do it through high school teachers and curriculum. And, and when those times come... You must let what, what God says about sex and sexuality rise above the way that your body feels or what your friend's telling you is right and okay. And I, for one, and I know Brother Tanner for another one, and Brother Sid and all the pastoral staff, we are open to talking through those things with you. Gone are the days where the church just gets to turn a blind eye to young people struggling with sexuality. Those days are behind us. It's, it, back in the day, it's like we were just trying to get them not to steal a piece of candy from the gas station. Now at age, in sixth grade and seventh grade, they're confused about whether they're a boy or a girl. Why? Because our world is nasty. It's wicked. They don't have to go and steal their dad's magazine anymore. They got it on their phone and some of you parents let it take in their bedroom at night. Hear me. We've got to speak into these young people's lives based on biblical truth. And I'm urging you to not abandon this book when your body is telling you to. Satan will twist the truth when it 
when it comes to difficult times by whispering in your ear, if God really loved you, then he wouldn't let this happen. You better yank yourself to, to biblical truth as for God, his ways are perfect. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. God has never stopped loving you. When you get offended, you better let biblical truth rise above your situation. Because the devil will tell you, you don't have to forgive this time. That is unforgivable. All you got to do is read Matthew 18 to realize it is not unforgivable. You better anchor yourself to the truth, even when you've been offended, betrayed, disappointed, and so on. That holding a grudge is never okay, no matter what the devil tells you. Never okay. And I could go on, but I'm passionate to tell you that your, your Bible must stay in your hand when you're walking through the difficult situations of life, or else you will go to a place that is completely false in your mind. Let me give you the last one. The only corrective to false teaching is the consistent exposure to true teaching. This is a twofold responsibility. The preacher and the people. Anyone who stands behind this pulpit has the responsibility to, 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 to stand behind it and to preach the entire counsel of the word of God. Well, I, I, I'm looking forward to being able to, to preach sequentially and expositionally and for the staff to do the same. I, I'm looking forward to making sure that we consistently make the main point of the passage, the main point of the sermon, nothing less and nothing more. And you, you might think, why do you talk about that all the time? Why are you passionate about it all the time? Because I know how much junk that I have to compete against as a preacher when it comes to the faults that the world is screaming at you every day. I know how many false gods this world is invading you with, and I know how many false gospels are out there, and I know how many worldly ways of thinking are out there about things like sexuality and marriage and parenting and finances and decision-making. And because of the plethora of voices that are screaming for your attention and filling your mind with that which is false, I am committed to being as loud and as passionate and as biblically authoritative from this pulpit as what men before me have been. Because the best way to correct that which is false is to be exposed consistently to that which is true. But I'm not the only one that bears that responsibility. You have a responsibility too. There will always be someone behind this sacred desk to expose the truth to you. But you need to get in the pew. As much as you can to be exposed to it. And when you're here... You must work hard at understanding and retaining the truths that are preached. See, the saddest thing about the Thessalonians' confusion about the day of the Lord was this. It was unnecessary. You know why? Because Paul said in chapter 5, I've taught you, the, or verse 5, I've taught you these things already. Have you so soon forgotten? I've told you these things. Yet you're over here believing this Yehu that's marching through town. They say that students walk out of a classroom and they forget 90% of what the teacher said within 10 minutes after they hear it. Sorry, teachers. <laughs> that should not be said as a Christian. We should not be, as James calls them, forgetful hearers. 
You understand when you come and hear the word preached, you are not giving attention and respect to the man. You're giving attention and respect to the book. And you've got to understand that this is not math. And it's not English. And it's not science. This is truth that will save you from falsehood. This is eternal truth that you will need maybe sooner than you even realize. And I know you work a job. I know you come here tired. I know you come here distracted. I know you come here burdened in some days. I know you come here and you're just lucky to sit in the pew sometime, and I respect that. But when you do, even when you're tired or all of the above, would you remind yourself that what you're hearing is something that might save your life later? So tune in. There, got, there has to be a time when you expose yourself so much to true teaching that you can stand on your two feet with the word of God. And so when false teaching comes along, you're not gullible. When doubt comes along, you can fight it with the truth of the word of God. Are you with me? There's got to come a time when you stop drinking the milk and you've been to church long enough and you've retained truth long enough and you've studied the Bible long enough where, where, where you are no longer asking for questions so much. Like, like you, you've got, you're anchored in the truth of the word of God. We never become masters at it. It's too much to retain. But at some point, at some point, you've got to be anchored in this book. It's your only hope against false teaching. That's a good chapter, isn't it? I thought so. When I studied it, just, it helped me to understand and be thankful for the fact that we have truth. And we are in a church that preaches truth. And our children go to Sunday schools where their Sunday school teachers teach the truth. We have a Christian school, praise God. We don't just try to pursue academic excellence. We try to give a biblical worldview. Outside of homeschooling, you can't find that. And I am thankful, and God knows, my mission field is our public school. That's my personal mission field in this town. I love our public school teachers. I love public school students. I'm burdened, even after coming out of the youth pastor, I'm incredibly burdened for them and will continue to throw myself into that mission field because it's huge here. And I pray for our public school teachers in this church regularly. But I am thankful. I am so thankful. My son will, Lord willing, for 13 years, get, he gets to learn to read while, while he learns the story of creation and the cross and character. I'm grateful that he will never, ever have to sit in a class where he is taught about sexual activity and every option available. Hey, listen to me. That's my job. And I'll do it when he's ready, and I'll do it the biblical way. And I'm so very, very thankful that we have people in our church dedicated like the Knutsons and their staff to giving our young people that kind of truth. And I think our church ought to appreciate that too. Yeah. So I, I guess the best way to respond to this is just to reflect in your heart, am I really anchored in truth? Or am I letting Satan rob me of my peace? Do I need to come and anchor myself back in the truth of the gospel? My salvation is not up to me. Have you released yourself from the authority of this book just because times are tough for you? 
Are you anchored in this book right now? Are you in it every day? Hey, are you thankful for a church that preaches truth? When's the last time you told God, thank you for that? A lot of ways we could respond publicly to the message. You just mind God tonight. And I'll pray. Instruments will play. And we'll have a time of invitation. Will you stand to your feet? Father, I